Welcome back. Okay, no, no. I won't break into song, but we do thank you so very much for joining us once again for the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. My name is Adashina Koiki, and this is a very special episode for us because this is episode number 10, a nice round number that we hit on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. So once again, thank you so very much for your time and for your support. And we have a very fun show for you on episode number 10. We were in Greensboro, North Carolina last week covering the 2014 ACC football kickoff, the ACC football media days. As I speak right now, it's July 28th. We are exactly one month away from the first Division I FBS teams kicking off the 2014 college football season. Can you believe that? And one of our conversations on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast for this show is with the former head coach of Wake Forest University and also the former head coach at Ohio University, Jim Grobe, stopped by. And he and I talked about the ACC in 2014, his new gig as well. He is a part of the Fox Sports South crew and part of the new television show on Fox Sports South, ACC Gridiron Live which debuts on August 27th. So Jim Grobe and I shared a conversation, had a conversation, and he also talked about how the current generation of college football players are different from the generation of college football players that he used to coach in years past, maybe affected by the I, 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 me, me, me attitude. Those are his words. Uh, so a very insightful interview that we have with the former head coach of Wake Forest University and now a member of the fourth estate, Jim Grobe. When you listen to the interview, I mentioned that he's a member of the third estate, which is the commons, uh, which is incorrect. He's a member of the fourth estate, which is journalism. So uh, listen for that interview with Jim Grobe, the former head coach of Wake Forest. Our first interview for this show is with a good friend of mine. Her name is Angela Olson Halstead. She is a big Washington Nationals fan. The Washington Nationals are playing the best ball of any team in the National League right now. Another series win against the Cincinnati Reds, winning yesterday 4-2. So the Nationals playing some really good ball. And I speak with Angela Halstead about all things Washington Nationals, including how a Blue Moon beer is critical in terms of whether the Washington Nationals win or or lose games when she and a friend are at Nationals Park. So the interview with Jim Grobe comes up a little bit later on the show. The interview with Angela comes up in about four seconds, and we will see you at the end of the show. Don't look now, but the team with the best record in the National League resides in the nation's capital. The Washington Nationals 6-3 in the second half of the season out of the All-Star break. 8-3 in their last 11 games overall. And on Sunday, completed another series win with a 4-2 win over the Cincinnati Reds on Sunday at Great America Ballpark. The Washington Nationals are now a game and a half ahead of the Atlanta Braves in the National League East. Three games ahead of the Atlanta Braves in the loss. Column and joining us now on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast to talk all things Washington Nationals. She is a legal secretary, a huge Washington Nationals fan, and I believe the unofficial team photographer for the Washington <laughs> Nationals. She is Angela Olson Halstead. She joins us on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. First of all, Angela, thank you for taking the time out, and how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for uh, joining us. First question I have for you: uh, National six and three. 
out of the break in the second half. Another win against the Cincinnati Reds to complete another series win. What's been clicking in the past week, couple of weeks for the Nationals? Well, um, we spent the first half of the season with a lot of guys on the DL. Um, and we're pretty much back to full strength now. Um, our third baseman, Ryan Zimmerman, is now back on the DL just just a couple games ago. Um, but he's the only one. So we had Bryce Harper out for most of the beginning of the season. We had Wilson Ramos out. Um, we had one of our starting pitchers, Gio Gonzalez, was out. So we were kind of struggling the first half of the season, and um, and I think that's why. And now we're back with everybody getting back in the groove, and um, and it shows. Now the two faces of the Washington Nationals franchise are a lot of people who would think that these two people are the two faces of the Washington Nationals are not having great seasons. You mentioned Bryce Harper who spent so much time on the DL with a thumb injury. Mm -hmm. He's batting around uh, 250 right now, still trying to get back into the swing of things. And then Steven Strasburg, he has 163 strikeouts and 137 innings pitched, but he's given up more hits than innings pitched. He's 7-8 and eight on the year. Any real worries about either Strasburg or Harper going forward into the stretch run? I don't think so, especially not for Harper. I think it's just going to take him a little bit of time to get his timing back. That's what he's been working on. Um, he has a, he started using a new stance about a week ago, which um, has been working very well for him. Um, yesterday against the Reds, he had some sort of boneheaded base running mistakes, but um, you know, they're supposed to run the bases aggressively, and that's what he did, and, and it just didn't work for him yesterday. I'm not worried about Harp at all. I think he's going to get right back to um, where we expect him to be. Strasburg, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm a huge Nationals fan. I like Steven Strasburg. I think he's immature. You know, I think he's still young. I think it's going to take him a while to really, I mean, it, I'm talking like years. It's going to take him a couple years to mature and to get into the picture that he really can be. Um, he he melts down. You know, if one thing goes wrong behind him, um, he can just completely lose it and and completely melt down. He there was a game this season where he pitched like three innings because um, he just completely fell apart. So you know, when he's on, he's on, and he's a lot of fun to watch. Um, but when he's not, he's just a mess. Once again, talking with Angela Olson-Halstead, legal secretary in the D.C. area and Washington Nationals fan. Uh, going down the stretch run, you mentioned Strasburg and his immaturity uh, for now, and it may take a few seasons for him to really get back uh, to the picture that a lot of people expect him uh, to be. Is he someone that you could possibly even rely on if in the event uh, the season for the Washington Nationals reaches the month of October? Yeah, but um, the thing is, we've got a we've got a really good starting rotation, and we've got an outstanding bullpen. So there's so there's not really much to complain about there. I mean, the the joke on the joke on Twitter among all the Nats fans, you know, that are kind of babbling about the Nats all the time is, "Who's our ace?" You know, "Who's our ace?" Well. It, who who knows? All five of our starting pitchers are really, really good. You know, Doug Fister, who just started pitching for us this year, is incredible. Tanner Roark, 
um, has had a couple of just unbelievable games the last couple times he's been out. Um, and those guys, I would imagine a lot of people around the country have never even heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, where obviously Strasburg people have heard of, so they're looking at him a little closer, but I mean, he's still good. We just thought, we just had a really good pitching staff all the way around. Uh, with Tanner Roark, and I believe he's 10 and 6 on the year, his ERA, I believe, is under 3 uh, this season. Mm-hmm. Is Tanner Roark uh, the biggest surprise of the Nationals, in your opinion, in 2014 so far? I think, yeah, I think so. I think so. And it's so funny because he looks like, he always kind of looks like he's a little surprised, too. <laughs> <laughs> Dear <in> headlights. <laughs> you know, he's out there. He's really, it seems like he's really having fun with it. Yesterday, he got pulled out of the game and um, after, I don't know, seven innings or something. And he was going to, the pitcher spot was coming up next to that. And he was in the dugout, like, putting on his batting helmet like he was going to go out there. And and he and he just cracked himself up with that because I mean obviously he was done for the day but um, he's just you know he's ready to go he's out there he's doing his thing and he's in the groove. Once again, joined by Angela Olson Halstead talking Washington Nationals on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. You mentioned earlier Ryan Zimmerman and his injury just a few games ago, I believe in Colorado. We, uh pulled a hamstring uh, trying to uh, beat out a throw uh, to first base, and he'll be out an undetermined period of time, but it seems as if Zimmerman will be out for a little while. How big of a loss is that uh, to the Washington Nationals? I know just a couple of months ago, the question was, where do you fit Ryan Zimmerman in the lineup if you can fit him in, and now he's going to be out. How big of a loss do you think that is for the Washington Nationals going forward without having Ryan Zimmerman for the first foreseeable future? Well, there are a lot of varying opinions on this. And in a way, I was kind of hoping hoping we wouldn't talk about this because I don't think my opinion is very popular. Um, And actually, it's interesting because a little while ago, you said to me that that a lot of people would see Harper or Strasburg as the face of the Nationals. Well, people around here who live around here Ryan Zimmerman is the face of the Nationals. Um, you know, people who have been paying attention to the Nationals more than just since 2012. Um, Ryan Zimmerman is like, he's sort of the rock of the Nationals, and he lives here, and he's a good guy, and everybody loves him. Um, the problem is he can't throw right now. <laughs> and so even when he comes back from his hamstring, um, he can't throw. He's got something wrong with his shoulder that I don't believe is going to get better. I think they have tried to teach him how to throw different kinds of ways um, so that he can sort of, like, work around it. But his throw from third to first is not reliable. Um, it's, sometimes he makes it, sometimes he doesn't. It's slow. It's He just he, he, he can't throw. Now, my son's... Um, suggestion is that they need to teach him how to throw left-handed. And I actually don't think that's a terrible idea. He's got a super, super hot bat. So, yes, we miss him in the batting lineup, but to be honest with you, Anthony Rendon is doing a fantastic job at third base. Danny Espinosa is doing great at second. He had a little trouble a couple of years ago. Um, He couldn't hit, basically. They sent him back down to the minors. He got that worked out. He came back up, and now, and he's always been a fantastic um, second baseman defensively. So we've got him at second. We've got Rendon at third. 
you know, Zimmerman was playing left field for a while while Harp was out, and he did a great job with that, although every time he had to throw the ball in, um, I kind of held my breath because it, it wasn't going to make it. <laughs> you know, you didn't know for sure if it was going to make it, and that's how it is when he throws from third to first. And the thing that I really think is odd about the whole thing is that nobody seems to want to say that out loud. So here I am, I'm saying it right out loud um, in a public forum that Ryan Zimmerman can't throw, and um, and I think they need to figure something out with that. Uh, we love it that you will stick your neck out there and say this in a public <laughs> forum. That's what we want. Uh, my, well, my suggestion or my question then is, if you were Matt Williams, uh, is Ryan Zimmerman just no more than a pinch hitter from the time he gets back from his hamstring injury on? Is he just a pinch hitter? I think that really depends on, well, I think it really depends on how Espinosa does. Um, because Espinosa is kind of the, um, he's the one who's in now because Zim is out. Um, if Zim was in at third, Anthony Rendell would be playing second. So because Zim is out, Rendell moved over to third, and now Danny Espinosa gets his shot back at second again. Um, so I think it depends on how Danny does the rest of the year. Um, if Danny has a really hot bat and he's really making the plays the way we know he can, then I, here's the thing. Nobody's going to get rid of Ryan Zimmerman because, like I said, everybody around here loves him. He's he's a knack. I mean, he's the knack. Um, but I personally... Just don't think it's that big of a deal to not have him in the lineup right now. I think we've got. I think we've got it covered. Hmm. I think uh, that's a very interesting take that you had about Ryan Zimmerman being the face of the Washington Nationals for those that are uh, that have their finger on the pulse of the Nationals and have had it uh-huh. on the pulse of the Nationals for the past few seasons. And I do agree with that, that Ryan Zimmerman, since uh, essentially he got called up to the majors, has been uh, the face of the Washington Nationals. You've mentioned that for now everything is good in terms of the players and where they are and their roles in the next few days thursday is the non-waiver trade deadline uh do the washington nationals make some sort of move to i guess uh cover themselves if in the event uh something possibly doesn't go right with the players that they have uh on in their positions now so do you see the nationals possibly making any deals uh, in the trade deadline and would you possibly want to try and bolster uh the lineup by the trade deadline Here's the thing. I've been trying to just ignore this whole trade deadline. It just makes me nervous. I just, it just makes it just gets Why does me it really make you nervous? Because I, I don't want anybody to, I don't want to trade anybody. <laughs> you know, I love everybody on the team. I don't want anybody to go. Um, you know, I just, I just, I don't even like thinking about it. But the chatter that I'm hearing, and I'm really, honestly, when people start talking about trades and what the Nationals should do and who they should go for and who they should get rid of, I I don't pay really close attention because it really does just stress me out. Um, but the chatter that I'm hearing is that they, that they might go looking for a left-handed bat that plays second. Uh, you know, or... I, that's what I'm really hearing. Uh, Chase Utley. P- people keep talking about Chase Utley, like we should get Chase Utley. I have no idea if that's like actually a possibility or if that's just people, 
you know, being funny. I have no idea. I really, I can't think about trading. <laughs> so you just put your <laughs> fingers in your ears and say la 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 when uh, talk about trades uh, occur. Exactly. I love all of them, and I don't want any of them to go. Which means, which jersey did you buy, which would be devalued if that person got traded? Is that what you're uh, oh, getting that, at? That person is not going to get traded. Um, which person and, is that? And, and, it's, and I'm a little worried about even bringing this up, because as you know, whenever I have a favorite national, um, that player gets traded. So um, Anthony Rendon is not my favorite national player. I just want to say that out loud okay, for the baseball okay. gods. Yes, that is the first jersey I have ever bought was a Rendon jersey, and I do love Anthony Rendon, but he's definitely not my favorite player. No problem. And he won't get <laughs> traded because you just appealed uh, to the baseball gods. Once again, Angela Olsen Halstead <laughs> joining us on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, talking Washington Nationals. And you go to a good number of Washington Nationals games. Uh, how's the atmosphere there? Are the fans starting to catch the pennant fever a little bit? Just the temperature uh, that you sense when you go to national games, Nationals games and when you have gone to Nationals games in 2014? Um, a lot of people, I, you know, it's hard to say because I don't want to say we were struggling in the first half because um, we really weren't doing terrible in the first half of the season, but I think everybody was really worried. Um, and I think the, uh, the general um, tenor was, you know, cautious optimism, but because of all the injuries. But um, yeah, I think I think people are starting to feel like we're going to maybe make the run at it, and um, people are paying attention, and they're they're talking a lot about who's out and who's in, and and yeah, I think we're I I, I keep hearing some of the games that I'm not at that I watch on TV. I keep hearing people say, "Oh, it felt like postseason game in here tonight," and I was like, "Oh, I wish I was there because that's really fun." Mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, I think we're I think we're making a run at it, and I think people know that and are starting to feel that way. Now, with the Nationals making a run at the division title and possibly the National League pennant, a couple of teams that they're going to more than likely have to conquer are a couple of teams that they have had a devil of a time beating over the past uh, few years, the Atlanta Braves and the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, before I even talk a little bit further about their possible matchups, the Nationals Braves and the Nationals Cardinals, any reason, any rhyme or reason as to why the Nationals have a tough time with either of those teams, the Braves or the Cardinals? I don't know, and I think the curse against the Braves has been broken at okay. this point. Um, we did well against them in our last series. The first series we had against them this year, they totally kicked our butts. But um, in the second series, we did well. I was at a game... I think I only went to one game last year that was a, a Braves game, and we won on a walk-off single by Denard Span, which was awesome, and everybody was really happy. So when people start talking about we can't beat the Braves, I'm like, but wait a minute, we, we beat them? Okay. Um, but, I mean, I know what people are saying because we have had a hard time with them. Um, I don't know. It seems like... Yeah, I mean, even at the beginning of this year, I was, when I was watching the Nats Braves games on TV, I was thinking, oh, man, the Braves just got our number. But, um, but I think we're getting past it. I mean, 
we we were injured. We had a lot of injuries at the beginning of the year, you know. But I think we're um, I think we're gonna. I don't think the Braves are going to be any problem for us this year, frankly. Oh wow, nice and bold <laughs> out there. You don't like you don't like sticking your neck out there, do you? Huh? Not at all. <laughs> I don't like the Braves. I <laughs> I just don't. I watch the Braves play, and like like they they come they come up one by one to the bat, and I just think to myself, oh, I don't like that guy. Uh, so, is yeah. there any brave that you, I don't want to say respect, but you don't say, I don't like you? Is there any brave that uh, does not incur your wrath, at least currently it's, on the roster? Well, it's very difficult to not like Freddie Freeman, but other than that, yeah, I think that's about it. Fair enough. Again, Angela Olsen-Halstead joining us, talking Nationals on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. And I did mention you do go to Washington Nationals games. Uh, you do have to explain uh, to everybody listening, you have, and a good friend of yours, have a routine that you must mm-hmm. perform uh, before mm-hmm. the game, or at least while the first inning is occurring. And if this routine is performed, then it's almost foolproof that the Nationals mm-hmm. win. So please take me through uh, what you guys do in ensuring that the Nationals mm-hmm. win. Take me through this routine that you have, you, you ladies. Okay. Have. Well, first of all, we always park in the same parking lot, and we walk the same way to the stadium. This is my friend Kirsty Nori. We go to a lot of games together. Um, I buy water from one of the vendors outside the, the stadium on my way in, and then as soon as we get into the stadium, she goes to the ladies' room, and I go buy our hot dogs. <laughs> then we meet back at the condiment table and fix up our dogs, and then we go find her uh, Blue Moon beer on tap, Um, and then she gets popcorn, and then we can go sit in our seats, and if all of that has happened and our daughters are not with us at the game, then um, it's it's assured that the the Nats will win. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. That, oh, wait, but, how did but Kirstie, Kirstie can only have one beer. Only if she one. Has two, yeah, if she has two, they lose. If she has none, they lose. She has to have one beer. And um, we actually just went to a game um, a little while ago that they did not win, and we think it's because we parked in a different parking lot. Okay, so you're just reaching for reasons as to why the team didn't win, if in the event that one stone wasn't unturned uh, in terms of... Okay, fair enough. Uh, That's a very, very interesting routine. Can you vouch for the fact that the team lost when Kirstie had either none or more than one beer? How did you figure out that, oh, it has to be just one, and then you figured out, oh, if it's one, they win? I, I don't know. How, were you uh, taking well, care of this? No, it's because at one game, she, she had had a cold. She didn't really feel well, so she didn't want to have a beer, and they lost. So then we're like, okay, well, you can't do that anymore. You know, you have to, and, you know, and so when she does, we're good. Once it's again, only crazy if it doesn't work, right? Exactly. It's only super and it, works. it doesn't work. Exactly. Again, Angela Olsen Halstead talking Washington Nationals on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. I want to leave uh, you with this. Uh, for those that are friends with you on Facebook or follow you on Twitter, 
you are a very prolific photographer when you go to Washington Nationals games. These are almost Pulitzer Prize winning photos. Uh, you, how did that? How did it start when not only you wanted to take photos at games, but you wanted to take the highest quality photos that any fan in any stadium could take and would take? So just take me through uh, how you started uh, this hobby, uh, going to games. Oh, Daddy, don't go on. <laughs> okay, okay, hold on for a second. Let me get some wax. I'm going to wax more poetic right here on the walls. Okay, but... No, I don't... I don't really know how it happened. I, I got a new camera. I've been wanting to, you know, I have crappy sort of point-and-shoot cameras all my life that I like taking pictures with them, but the pictures never turned out very good. So a couple of years ago, I splurged, well, my husband splurged, and got me um, an SLR camera for Christmas, and I started messing around with it, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to take some pictures when I go to this next game. And the first time I ever did it, we actually had really good seats in that game, and the pictures turn out quite a bit better when you have good seats. Um, and I just took a lot of pictures, and um, I had a lot of fun coming home and going through them and finding the good ones and cropping them and doing all that kind of stuff. And so now I just do it at every game, and um, it's it's just part of my it's part of the thing I do. I've always been a sports fan. Um, even when I was a kid, so, like, it's fun to look and to, to see what they're doing and, like, to watch how they're talking to each other, and, like, I'd like to get shots like that, not just shots of them, you know, hitting the ball, which everybody can take a shot of them hitting the ball, but I like to get shots of them talking and, and laughing and, you know, talking to the umpires and, and stuff like that. It has been a pleasure talking with you. Legal Secretary... Mother, baseball fan, scorekeeper, baseball god pleaser. Uh, what else? FP Santangelo fan. I don't think we even got to talk about you. And oh, FP. we didn't even talk about FP. I love FP. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that would be a conversation uh, when the Nationals are doing well in uh, September going into October. We do hope to catch up with you uh, very soon, but I did list all of those things uh, that do describe Angela Olsen Halstead. We thank you so very much for joining us on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, and we will catch up with you down the road one last question are you more of a washington nationals fan or an iowa hawkeye wrestling fan oh that's not even fair um <laughs> it is luckily the seasons don't overlap so i can be a national fan um through october and then uh, wrestling season starts up in November, and I'm all about the Hawkeye. All right. And we will make sure to put up a couple of photos that you have taken while at Nationals Park uh, on our website as well. Angela Olson Halstead, thank you so very much for joining us. We will catch up with you down the road, and I guess I have to say go Nats, right? <laughs> That's right. Thanks, Daddy. It's been fun. Once again, here at the 2014 ACC football kickoff here in Greensboro, North Carolina at the Grand Over Resort and Hotel. And we are pleased to be joined by the newest member of the third estate, uh, Jim Grove, former head coach at Wake Forest University, former head coach at Ohio University, the winningest head coach at Wake Forest University, and now joins Fox Sports South as he will be part of the new television show, ACC Gridiron Live, which debuts on August 27th. And thank you so very much, Coach Grove, 
uh, for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. No, no problem. First of all, you're making the transition from off the field to in front of the camera. How do you think that's uh, going to go for you? Are well, you we're going to see. It's exciting for me. It's a, it's a new challenge. It's something that I haven't done before. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm with, with really good people. That's what's going to make it a great show. We've got a lot of good people, guys that have had good college careers, some of them good NFL careers, and uh, just going to be a fun show, I think. How, look back at your Wake Forest uh, coaching career. Very successful, winning as head coach. What do you take from those years that you had uh, in Winston-Salem? Well, I think uh, I got a pretty good uh, feel for the Atlantic Coast Conference. You know, I played at the University of Virginia uh, and then coached at Wake for 13 years, so I got a pretty good uh, idea of, of a player perspective, a, a coach's perspective, and uh, I just, uh, you know, hopefully I can bring some insight uh, and I know the other guys that have had great playing careers are going to give great insights, but hopefully I can do a little bit from the coaching angle. Uh, you were on the field watching Florida State last year winning its national championship of all the teams that you have seen in the ACC as a player and as a head coach. If you can, compare the Florida State team last year, which won the national championship, to some of the great ACC teams of the past. Well, I think, uh, you know, they were as good as we've played. Uh, I thought it was fun uh, to, to watch them through the season. I didn't like, uh, you know, having them wear us out, which they did last year. But what I thought was really interesting, talking to Jimbo before the game, he was so excited talking about things that had nothing to do with talent, you know, talking about the chemistry of the team, uh, how, they, how they fit together, how they had their egos in check. He, you could just tell that he was having a lot of fun coaching that football team. I've, I've actually uh, known coaches that had great talent, but they didn't enjoy their football team. And I could tell that he enjoyed those guys and that he had the kind of chemistry on that football team that made coaching fun. What? makes it such that a team might have great talent but not be a joy to coach. I, th I think the egos get, get too far along. You know, we're in an age today where you don't really know who's getting to the kids with the social media, with Twitter and Facebook, and all that stuff's fun, but, uh, you know, you don't know who the kids are listening to today, and a lot of times kids are not just listening to the coach. You know, back when I was playing, the coach was like the guy. I mean, you, you basically listen to your football coach about like you did your own parents, and that's changed today. You know, a lot of people have their hooks into the kids, and you really don't know uh, who's the biggest influence on the kids, and so sometimes there's some pretty goofy ideas, and it, it lends itself to the me, 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 I, I, gimme, 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 more, more, more kind of stuff, and I think the thing that uh, you, you're really blessed when you have those seasons, we had one, we really went to the Orange Bowl, where uh, nobody cared about themselves. They cared more about each other, and that's when you know you've got a special program. Did you experience that at Wake Forest, kind of the I, 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 me, me, me with a few of the players? A little bit. I thought a couple of our seasons that uh, we didn't quite achieve as much as we could have. We had more, kid, more kids that worried more about stats than winning. And, uh, and, and, you know, it comes from a lot of different directions. It, it comes from family members. It comes from friends. It could come from boosters. Uh, from, from, you know, we have runners on campus, agent problems and all kinds. So you really don't know where kids get some of their ideas. But 
typically your best football teams are not just about talent. You've got to have kids that will put their ego to the side and really do things that involve winning more than in individual performance and stats. Once again, joined by Jim Grove, former head coach at Wake Forest University, former head coach at Ohio University, now on Fox Sports South. Uh, you coached at a school with uh, high ac- academic standards. And... There's Notre Dame and there's Stanford and other schools that are in that boat as well. Uh, How did you make that work in terms of blending the academic standards at Wake Forest University with a quality team on the football field consistently? Well, it's really not easy. You know, one of our problems was uh, we had to constantly talk to the kids about academics. We had to stress you know, all the things uh, which you should take for granted, but you can't, going to class, going to study hall, going to tutoring, when you're in tutoring and you're in study hall, paying attention, you know, working out a way to, to get better in the classroom. And, and as a coach, what, what you really wonder sometimes is you spend so much time talking academics that uh, you have the tendency to, to kind of devalue your emphasis on football and, and of course as a coach you got to win to keep your job if you don't win you're not staying and so it's a it's a as my old buddy skip prosser would say it's a conundrum you know you're caught in the middle of trying to stress academics but also stressing football and at work force the problem is it's a really hard school academically you know you can be in classes with only 12 14 kids so you, you stand out you know if you miss class it's not like the teacher's not going to know you missed and uh and, and then you got to go play in, in one of the top conferences in the country. No easy outs. Every Saturday, brutal. you got to go out and play your best football. So that balance to me is the hardest thing. At the good academic schools, trying to find balance in how much you stress football and how much you stress academics. And, you know, you try to go 50-50, but then you wonder if you should be spending more time on football. And if you're spending too much time on football and kids aren't succeeding in the classroom, you know, you wonder should you spend more time academically. So that the really good schools, really tough, hard schools like Wake Forest, it's, it's not easy. You mentioned Skip Prosser, the late Skip Prosser, the former head coach at Wake Forest University for men's basketball. Uh, can you explain your relationship uh, when you had the chance to know Skip Prosser, your relationship with Skip? Well, Skip was fun because uh, Skip's one of those guys that when you saw him coming, you just started smiling because you knew you were going to have fun. You know, he always had a joke or an interesting twist on, on something that uh, just made life fun. He just made life better for everybody. Everybody uh, loved Skip Prosser, and uh, Skip was fun for me because you know, anytime we'd lose a game, and that was back, you know, Skip was doing some great stuff before we got on a run in football, and uh, he used to come in after a tough loss. He'd come down to my office and try to calm me down and pat me on the back and tell me it was all going to be okay. But when he'd have a tough loss and I'd go up to see, he didn't want any of it. He didn't want to hear any of it. You know, he was a, he was a guy, remember he used to tell the story, uh, somebody around, uh, his dad had, had said, you know, he'd lost a basketball game or a football game or something uh, in high school. And somebody said, well, you can't win them all. And his dad said, who made that rule? You know, and that's kind of the way Skip was. I mean, he really, I think, went into every season thinking he was going to win them all and expecting to win them all. So uh, he was always able to calm me down a little bit, but I don't know how much I ever helped him <laughs> when he had a tough loss. Uh, again, joined by Jim Grobe, former head coach at Wake Forest University and Ohio University, now on ACC Gridiron Live on Fox Sports South, debuting August 27th. My first exposure to you as a coach was when you were at, the, at Ohio University. 
and I remember, and I believe it was 1997, and you had a very good team in 1997. I think you lost to uh, Marshall at the end of the oh, year. Oh, that was tough. That yeah. was good. That was, yeah. was Pennington and, and all those good yeah. players, Randy Moss, all those guys. And what I always remembered is, of course, Marshall was throwing the ball all around. Oh, gosh, yeah. And your school in Ohio, I think, if I remember correctly, going into that game, you might have completed... What, 16 passes? Yeah. All, all yeah, the percentage long. was pretty good, but we didn't throw it a lot. We usually completed a lot of them, but we didn't throw it too much. So talk a little bit about the transition between the offense that you had in Ohio to going to Wake Forest, a different conference with better athletes and having to tweak the offense a little bit, if you did tweak the offense, uh, when, you're, when you were from Ohio where you were barely completing passes because you were so uh, – so good running the football, and then going to Wake Forest and having more of a multiple type of offense. Yeah, well, you know, when I first got to Ohio University, they called us Air Force East. You know, I mean, we'd really, we're running the wristband and, and, uh, and the double slot stuff, two-step motion. We were doing that, that kind of stuff. And uh, we had a, a, a little quarterback, Kareem Wilson, who ended up 10 yards shy. D. Dallas's all-time rushing record as a quarterback. So, and Kareem had very small hands. He really had trouble even gripping a football to throw it. And so uh, we, we really just had a quarterback that was off the charts great runner but not a real good thrower. And so we, we basically ran a lot of option football. We actually had some games we didn't throw any passes in. I remember we, we I think, sports center one time had a that, that, that. Here's one for you. They just won a game and didn't throw a pass, you know, kind of thing. But uh, as we matured, as we went through, the one thing we, we didn't like about the spread offenses, we a lot of times got checked off to place where we were pitching the ball to the wrong guy. So we started getting in the eye and doing some of the old Nebraska stuff, running the option out of the eye, and that gave us some sprint draw and ISO stuff that we could play action pass off, so now we could do play action pass and boot. We started running some orbit sweep. We stole that from Minnesota. They hurt us with it, so we started running some of that. And so when we came to Ohio, or to Wake Forest from Ohio, we had a pretty good background in option football, but we had varied our attack a little bit. And so we just kind of blended that in. We had a quarterback at Wake that really... Uh, was not a, a great option quarterback. He, he was a three, four-yard guy. James McPherson did a really good job, but could really throw the football. In fact, I think he, to this day, has some indoor leg passing records. And then we had Avery Mahaley, the big fullback. was a great player, but Avery wasn't an option fullback. He would vaporize you, blocking you, but really wasn't real comfortable running with the football. So we put, that's where all the misdirection came from. That, that, that was something we had to do. We had a good quarterback could throw the football with some good receivers. We had a guy named John Stone was the ACC 100-meter champ. But John wasn't real good catching the football. But we could hand him the orbit sweep and he'd outrun everybody. And Fabian Davis, another kid, did that really well. So we kind of developed a package based on our personnel. And that's what we tried to do. We, we got a little bit spoiled when we had Riley Skinner because we could just throw it all the time. But most of the time we had to figure out ways to move the football. In a, in a way, the offense that you had to run, given, I guess, I would say, some of the limitations on some of your players, even though they were great at other aspects of the game, almost either spearheaded or... Uh, beats all of the spread offenses and the fly sweeps that you see uh, in college football. Do you see these offenses that you see uh, with Oklahoma State, these spread offenses, spread to run uh, uh, offenses? Uh, is this just a phase or is this the future, the present and future of college football and football? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, everything that's being done's been done before. Okay. You know, there are very few new ideas in football, and and uh, I think what's interesting now is you see the fun and gun teams, the basketball and grass teams, when they play an I team like Alabama, they really struggle because they're not used to power football. So you know, like Boston College this year had a Heisman Trophy uh, candidate in their great running back, and they just ran it right down everybody's throat, and they got all these spread teams that we're used to seeing a lot of throwing the football, and now all of a sudden you got them running downhill on you for five and six yards a carry. So it, it goes back and forth. I think the thing that's really uh, hurt defenses today, it's really put, putting them uh, on edge, is the speed of the game now, the hurry-up offenses. More so than the spread offense. You see a lot of different spreads. You know, uh, Georgia-Texas spread offense, but they're primarily an option offense. You see spread offenses that, that are going to dunk and dunk the football and throw it 60 times a game. Uh, but I think what's really changed it more than anything else is the speed of the game right now. The hurry-up offenses get right back to the line of scrimmage, snapping the ball as quick as they can. Defenses tend to like to stem and disguise. They like to show you one defensive front and then shift over to the other before the snap. They like to show you cover two and then roll to cover three and give you different things like that. Uh, and they don't have the opportunity to do that anymore. So it's dry. the speed-up offenses are the th- is the new thing, and pretty soon there'll be something different come along, but it's usually recycled stuff. It's stuff that somebody else has probably done earlier, and somebody puts a new take on it. A few coaches have complained about how some of the teams play so fast and don't allow the defenses to get set. Uh, I think Brett Bielema was one of the coaches yeah, that yeah. wanted to have the game yeah. slow down a little bit for the safety of the players, at least that was his uh, argument. Are you in uh, that boat, or is it just one of those things where it's by the book, it's legal, and this is just how you're going to have to adjust and play because these offenses are playing at this speed? Yeah, well, my background's defense. That's where I spent. I've coached the offensive line before. I've spent a little time offensively, but mostly I've been a defensive football coach. And... Uh, you know, if you're, if you're a deliberate offensive football team, if, if you're more into signaling in plays or running plays in with your players and, and you're kind of deliberate, I could see where you'd like to get rid of speed-up offenses of the opponent because you don't do it every week in practice. You don't work on it. So when you get to it, it, it creates a new teaching environment for you. Uh, from my experience, and, and maybe it'll prove that I'm wrong and I'm for safety of the players, but I don't see it being a safety issue. You know, you've got 11 players on defense. You've got 11 players on offense. The offensive guys have as much opportunity to be tired as the defensive guys do. Uh, uh, you know, if the offense substitutes, you can substitute. You know, the rule is if they don't substitute, you don't have the right to, so they can go hurry up. But their players are getting the same number of snaps that your players on defense are getting. Uh, maybe there are more plays in the game. But I don't know that that necessarily creates a safety issue. So, and defensively, we always have a chance to go three and out. You don't have to stay out there if you don't want to. Go play great defense and get off the field. So I'm not sure it's much of a safety issue as it is different styles for different teams. And sometimes, you know, if you don't like the style the other team's running, maybe you'd like to see them not be able to run that style of offense. But... Uh, uh, it would be interesting to see this next year. I think that it really just came on the radar screen with Brad and, and Coach Saban and those guys feeling like it's a safety issue. Maybe there are going to be some studies done and we'll find out it is. But to me right now, I don't see it as a safety issue as much as something that's driving defenses crazy. Once again, Jim Grobe joining us. What came together 
in 2006, I believe 2006, the 2007 yeah. Orange Bowl. Um, how did that season unfold, and how did it become such a magical season? I think what we talked about before, we, we just had a special group of guys. We had a really got group of guys that really checked their ego at the front door when they came in and really cared a lot about each other. It's probably as good a, and we've had some other really good ones, but that was just one of those special years where you, you felt like you had a team that really cared about each other. Are you going to wear a coaching hat again on the sidelines, or is the headset the perfect fit for you? Well, I miss football. i got to tell you, I, I, I went to some spring practices uh, this year, and uh, being out there watching practice and watching the coaches and the players, I miss the players and the coaches, and uh, we'll see. We'll see. It's something that, you know, I love the game of football. You know, you've you got a lot of other issues as a head coach off the field that, that get to be uh, be tough. And, of course, the Wake Forest, we had a tough job. It, it's, it's a job that, you know, you you got to stay out 24-7. And so, uh, I, you know, I, I, but I miss football. I miss competition. You know, I'm, I'm, I know this fall I'm going to enjoy working with Fox. I'm going to enjoy doing some games for Raycom. But uh, there's no doubt I'm going to miss being on the sideline. Jim Grove, 19-year head coach at the Division One level. You will see him and the cast of characters on ACC Gridiron Live debuting August 27th, Fox Sports South. Coach Grove, and i got to call you Coach. I just can't call you Jim. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so very much for joining us. And the best of time on TV, and maybe we'll see you on the sidelines yet again. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks. We do hope that Jim Grobe finds his way onto the sidelines and coaches once again. He is a very good coach, but we do wish him all the best in his endeavors in television. And we thank Jim Grobe for joining us on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. And we also thank Angela Olsen-Halstead for the very, very entertaining and informative interview about the Washington Nationals. So our show, episode number 10, about to wrap up. So stay tuned next week for episode number 11 and also go to our website a lot of sports where we have comprehensive previews of both the Atlantic and coastal divisions of the Atlantic Coast Conference in the 2014 ACC football season. We talk with over 15 players and coaches from the ACC in Greensboro, North Carolina. So go to our website, www.alotofsportstalk.com to look up our previews. One Atlantic Division preview, one Coastal Division preview. So a lot of interviews, a lot of insight, a lot of information on a lot of sportstalk.com about the 2014 season in football in the Atlantic Coast Conference. So thank you so very much for joining us once again for episode number 10. We will see you for episode number 11. And until then, you have yourself a very good week, okay? Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>